Welcome to Still Becoming, a podcast about how it's never too late to become more free, more yourself, or try something new. I'm Monica DiCristina, a wife, mother, and practicing psychotherapist. Through my own struggles with my anxiety years ago that led to my professional work as a therapist now, I am fascinated by the process of how we become who we are. We will explore the topics of becoming, of unbecoming, and overcoming through interviews, unpacking mental health topics, and stories. You are not designed to stay the same. Your story is still being written. We are all still becoming. I am so excited to have Kendra Adachi on the Still Becoming podcast. I'm a huge fan of her work, and maybe you're familiar with her work too. You may know her as The Lazy Genius, and her newest book is called The Lazy Genius Kitchen, and it is just all the things that Kendra's work always seems to be, which is full of self-compassion, self-acceptance, but also empowering and equipping us in a really grounding way to live in our real lives in a way that helps us to be ourselves. You know, when you get to talk to someone and they are even better than you imagined, that is my experience with Kendra. She is such a delight, so much fun to talk to, and so full of wisdom and shares vulnerably from her own life a lot of the things that has informed her work and that we can all learn from as we listen. In this conversation, we'll talk about her new book. We'll also talk about what matters and how to decide what matters and prioritize that. We'll talk about self-acceptance and self-compassion as a starting place for making any change in our lives and how those changes in our lives are best made when they're small, accessible steps. I can't wait for you to hear this conversation with Kendra Dachi. Kendra, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. And it's just um, already a delight to talk to you off um, before we were recording and just appreciate you taking this time. Oh, I appreciate it, Monica. Thank you for having me. For those listeners that are huge fans and those listeners that are meeting you for the first time and everyone in between, can you introduce yourself and tell us a little bit about the heart behind the lazy genius work that you're doing that is helping so many of us in the world? I sure can. So my name is Kendra, family background. So I'm married. I have three kids. I live in the same town that I was born in. I have not moved oh. in 40 years. <laughs> That's awesome. So I have I have some pretty deep roots where I am. And I love I've been doing internet work for um over 12 years, but this particular work has come from, you know, a lot of like invisible, like a lot of invisible building, you know, of work that I've Mm, done for a really mm -hmm, long time mm -hmm. that's led to this. But the whole intention behind my work of helping people be a lazy genius is to be a genius about the things that matter and lazy about the things that don't. And that is just a clever way of saying, you can't do it all, guys. You can't do it all. But also, you can do some things and not in a, not in a performative, like, um, white knuckly, like get it together, bootstraps energy. It's like, we're made to care. 
we want to have purpose in our lives. We want to be intentional about things. We want there to be meaning and joy and all of that. And we also have things that have to get done. We have to make dinner. We have to wash our clothes. Like there are things that we have to do. And so I want there to be kinder, broader, just relentless permission from me to name what matters to you and to choose the things that do and dive in as much as you have the ability to and the desire to. You can care deeply about things that matter to you and with the same kind of abandon that you let things go that don't matter as much, that you can be lazy about things, that you can you can choose the convenient route in certain areas of your life to create margin around the things that matter. I love the message so much. It's so, um, tell me if these words are comfortable. It's so anti all or nothing. Oh, you that's know, 100% what it is. Yeah, You're absolutely yeah. right. There's like, <laughs> yes. it is so easy. I especially think as women, and I don't know mm-hmm. how many people are listening are women, but I feel like as women, we have been fed a pretty binary way of looking at our lives. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. And there are lots of resources that speak to both extremes, right? Like how to get more done, how to do, 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 do. Or then like, hey, like everything's fine, which maybe it is to a point, but like there's no practicality. There's no there's no meeting in the, this wide middle of like, all right, I really do need practical help. I really do need some systems. I really do need to get stuff done. But like, not everything. And also, can you just like pep talk me a little bit sometimes or tell me to take a nap or whatever? And so there, there is a wide, wide middle that we just, we just miss. We just miss. Yeah, we really do. And that's where we live. You know, I mean, that's really where we live every day is in that middle. And I just, I love the way that you address that. And your new book is The Lazy Genius Kitchen. And when I picked up this book, I was like, how did she know? I, you know, I really, I felt like, I was like, is Kendra in my life? Is she spying on me? Because it felt so much like you knew the things that I was struggling with. And I'm sure I'm not alone with that. But I wonder, can you let us into the idea of using the lazy genius, like brilliant approach, the anti all or nothing approach in the kitchen, which is Again, it's not sexy, the kitchen, but that's where we spend so much of our lives, whether we're single, (laughs) married, we have several children, whatever the case. Yes, Yes, it's true. So there is this... this idea in book writing, especially in a lot of creative, a lot of creative industries, but this idea that you cannot make something for everybody, right? You can't Mm -hmm. write a book Mm -hmm. for everybody. And I'm like, I don't know. I'm going to (laughs) try. I want to (laughs) try because I think that there is, um, it's exactly what you said. We are in the kitchen all the time, or we feel like we should be in there all the time because but we have to we have to eat. Everybody has to eat. It doesn't exactly. matter how old exactly. you are, what your life looks like, what job you have. Like you have to eat. And there can be so much pressure on what that looks like. And without lenses and tools to choose what matters to us as individuals and let the rest of it go, we are going to be constantly buried in the overwhelm of our kitchen. I love the kitchen. I love cooking for people. I love feeding people and gathering people. I I love actually cooking. 
And even I get really overwhelmed by it. And so I think it's it's important to name that it's not easy to be in the kitchen. It's not easy. And our resources so far have been like kind of like loosely, like like a dusting of cultural expectations and then just like a slew of cookbooks. And so we're reading cookbooks, which are great. I love cookbooks. I have a whole shelf of them, but we read them looking for the the answer, looking for like the magic formula to not be overwhelmed anymore. And that is not where to look. That's not where to look. And I've been waiting for somebody to write a book about where you are to look and no one did. And I was like, well, okay, I guess I'll write it. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, and And here we are. Yeah. It's so good. I I feel like the, you know, I have a, a shelf of cookbooks and, and they're great. I mean, they're pretty, I don't use them, um, but they're really pretty. And I feel like part of um, my experience with cookbooks is that they are so unrealistic. You know, I, I definitely don't look like that when I'm cooking. I don't have prep bowls, you know, and I don't have everything laid out. And it just continues this sort of disconnect between the help that's out there and the real life we're living, which I feel like you really thread that needle in all your work really well. I think that one thing that that is missing in conversations around sort of food culture and cookbook culture and food blogging culture, because that's a real thing, is that we miss the nuance which we miss nuance in a lot of things. Mm-hmm. That's like my whole, You're I'm, right. start, I'm starting You're right. to give myself actually like a new line in my job description, which is like, like, like nuance revealer. I'm like, Hey guys, we're missing a lot <laughs> here. We're missing a lot here. Great. Um, yeah. But one of the things I think we miss in this particular um, scenario in this context is if cookbooks were ugly, we wouldn't read them. We wouldn't buy mm, them. That's true. We wouldn't that's be interested in them. We wouldn't. And then like food videos and, and all these things, like we probably wouldn't watch them in the same way if we had to wait for the person to dig around for the can of soup that they didn't bring with them. And then they get interrupted by the kid and the dog. And, you know, like there is a performative nature to a lot of food writing and food presentation because that is lovely to consume. But what we miss, we miss the nuance of the purpose of that is primarily to entertain. It is to entertain. It is not to teach. It's not to teach. So what we end up doing is resenting people we resent cookbook authors and food bloggers and like, you don't understand my life when it's like, oh no, actually they're just trying to make money. If they had ugly photos, I wouldn't go to their site. You know, there's this wide place in there of like, okay, let's name things for what they are, right? These cookbooks are beautiful. Now, why don't I use them? Let's go, you know, we can start there and go like, all right, I have a bunch of cookbooks. Now, why don't I use them? Now, here's the question. It's like, well, what matters to you about having cookbooks? It could be that they're really comforting and you just like to see them even if you never open them. It could be that these, they're nostalgic in some way. It could be that you are looking for a magic recipe. And when you know that and you name that, you're like, oh, well, then I can get rid of these seven because I know it's not in there. You know, like I know that these are not for my life right now. Like we just, the more that we can name what's going on, you know, and kind of see the nuance of things, see the season we're in, see that like if you are at home with tiny kids, under no circumstances will you have prep bowls out. Like under no circumstances, it's too many dishes and it's too much time. Like that's not the season of life for like carefully curated dinners, generally speaking, unless you're lazy about a lot of other things because you just don't have time, right? So so all that to say, it is about prioritizing what matters to you specifically and 
feeling the freedom in what you choose. It's okay. It's actually good and normal and makes the world go round that we choose different things. We need to choose different things. I love the way you're, you know, revealing nuances. I love the way that you name things. I think that that's really powerful. Something I really believe in in mental health when we name what something is and what it isn't, what we appreciate about it and what we don't appreciate about it. It helps us locate ourselves around it. I just located myself around my cookbooks, thanks to you. I I find them beautiful and comforting and not useful. And you know what? I really love beautiful things. They're art. And that's okay. Yes, it is. It is. I love that. You talk a lot about deciding what matters. And I've listened to your podcast too. I love how you even self-disclose or um, you know talk about different scenarios in a way that one size is not fit all. Wait, one size does not fit all? You That's know, right. One size doesn't. Yes, it definitely doesn't. Yeah. And so I wonder if you can talk a little bit about this and how important this is, especially in the self-help realm, which I'm in as well, kind of in a different corner of it, but that, you know, oftentimes we see people who this worked for me and, you know, even in mental health, this worked for me. And so this is the cure for everyone and for everything. And when it doesn't work for us, we kind of feel like a failure. And of course that wasn't the person's intention, but can you talk about, you know, the, the, not only the simplicity, but the power of you decide what matters. You said it perfectly. Like you set it up so well, because that's exactly what happens. We read books, we hear podcast episodes, we hear friends talking about things that work for them. I mean, even like a kitchen gadget, you know, like I think about the, you know, the Instant Pot or the air fryer or things that it's like, no, you have to get one of these. It makes sense to me that if you're excited about something, and it's changed your life. It's impacted your life in a positive way. You want the people that you know and love to have their lives positively impacted too. That's the intention, right? And that is the other person's intention when they're like, hey, you have to do this. It, th- recently, I did a, uh, this is just an example that's not kitchen related, but recently um, I had a post on Instagram about books. I was in like a book guide and um, chosen for a book guide. It was super fun, but there were a lot of other books on there. And I had shared which ones that I was going to read from this guide. And uh, an internet friend of mine who loves to like, I love this thing. You should try this thing. And she said, "Um, you should definitely read such and such book. And I looked at the book and I was like, and I responded to her. I was like, I'm not going to read that because that is sad historical fiction about orphans. And I do not, that is not what matters to me. I can't do it. That is not what matters to me about our reading. I like dystopian patriarchies. I like magic. I like circuses. Like I know what I like. (laughs) And what happens, what happens is we can slowly work together in our own individual, like in our nuclear families and our small communities. And and that can kind of like overflow into a bigger community. We can work together as humans to allow each other to choose differently than we choose. And the more that we, the more that we do that, the more that we can say, Hey, I don't know if this would help you, but this really worked well for me. I don't know if you would want to give it a shot as opposed to, Oh, you, you have to do this. Or if someone doesn't have maybe the awareness or they're just so excited in that moment that they're like, They just can't help but shout from the rooftops this thing that they love, that you can even know inside yourself the nuance of their intention. You can know, you know what? They're not trying to boss me here. And I don't owe them trying that thing. I can just not try it. I can say, hey, thank you. Thank you. Thank you for that. 
Thank you for that. I'm so glad that works so well for you. I'm so glad. And you don't have to do it, right? Because what you said is exactly right. We do what worked for someone else. And when it doesn't work for us, we think we are the problem, not that the thing didn't work. Not everything works for everyone. So it's just, that is why there's, I'm just like, I call myself a professional permission giver because it's like, no, you don't have to do that. Like you don't have to do that. Oh, I love that. I love embodying that permission in your relationships when you're sharing something or just internally that, you know, honoring that when someone shares, they may just be, you know, so excited about the air fryer that they have to tell you. And you can, you can have like, really what we're talking about too is healthy boundaries. You can have a healthy boundary between their excitement and your credit card, right? What you're going to have to buy next. Yes, you can, because <laughs> they're not cheap. But the other thing, as you were saying, it made me think too, the other thing is there is something in us that if, let's say we are the, let's say I'm the air fryer evangelist, right? I'm like, you should totally get an air fryer and I'm super excited about it. And someone says like, oh, I don't know. What we can do if we're not careful, if we're not paying attention, is that we think something was wrong with our decision. We already made the decision and it's making our lives better. And if someone else doesn't choose it, we begin questioning our decision. And we don't have to do that either. Just because someone else like rejects the idea, so to speak. That doesn't mean we made the wrong call for ourselves in the first place. A hundred percent. And it makes me think of the idea that we sometimes have sameness mixed up with closeness, right? That we have to be the same to be close. We have to be the same to be friends or to be supportive of each other. Whereas we can be really different and be so supportive of one another. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's that's beautifully said. That's so clear. Love that. I want to talk a little bit about mental health. And, you know, when I was reading your book or listening to your podcast, your first book, I thought a lot about um, that sometimes in therapy, I do couples therapy and individual therapy, and sometimes in therapy, having a system for who's going to unload the dishwasher, I've actually seen made a a huge impact, right? And that's not obviously the content of depth-oriented therapy, but it's real. Or I've seen someone make a little bit of turn a corner in a depressive episode by cleaning out their car, right? The the reality of how, what you're describing in in your work, whether it's the new book or your, your first book really makes a difference in our mental health. I almost thought as I've been, you know, reading your um, books, thinking, you know, is, is Kendra like a sneaky therapist? Like there's something (laughs) like I, it's really, it's kind of like you're, you're teaching us how to live in some ways. That's really sweet. And, um, no, I've just had, I've just experienced a good bit of trauma in my life and I have been to a therapist for a long time. So, um, I did an event a year or two ago. It was basically like speed dating between book clubs and authors where authors would sort of go around to these tables of people who bought a ticket and most of those tables were existing book clubs. And you would basically pitch your book to them for a book club pick. And I was the only nonfiction book in the bunch. There were like 15 to 20 fiction books. And a lot of people were like super lovely and most everybody was super lovely. And even as I say the story, it's not that these particular people were not super lovely, but I sat down at a table and it was some women that were older than me. And one woman, very understandably, when I pitched what the book was, when I said what it was, she very understandably said, well, do you have any training? Like, do you have, did you go to school for this? Like, do you, like, it was essentially like, what gives you the right to say this, to speak into this? And I said, no, I have an English degree. You know, I don't have like any degrees in like, like, you know, engineering or efficiency or uh, therapy or, you know, any of these things. Like, no, I don't. And in that moment, 
that really like popped my balloon pretty aggressively, like mm. pretty fast. I'm sorry. And, yes. and it was really yeah. hard, but I had to move on to the next table. I didn't know what to do with that. I, I couldn't process it. I couldn't metabolize at that point. And so I was like, well, okay, I just, we're going to have to hold this. And, um, and a few days later, I was having a conversation on a podcast with a therapist who had read my, had read my stuff. And we were having a conversation about some of these principles in this context. And she said, I don't know, I don't know if anyone's ever told you this, but I can tell that your work is very trauma informed. I like immediately started crying. <laughs> I just started mm, crying wow. because yeah. I didn't realize I had been still holding that hurt from that other interaction and I hadn't dealt with it really. I had just been like, well, that hurt, but I didn't know, I didn't have further words for it. I hadn't named anything else about it. And so when this woman, the therapist said that, it was so deeply validating to me. And, um, and so you're saying, it's the same thing here. Like you're saying, like, are you a secret therapist? It's like, it is, I don't want to say like, I am, cause I'm not, I don't have the training right, I and know. I know how <laughs> right. much training and hours and like all of the, all of the things go into being a therapist. Um, but I can say like, it is such an honor that the work that I do can help you get your laundry done and also at the same time can help you feel more like yourself and feel more whole. And I mean, that is just like one of the greatest, it's just one of the greatest honors. I heard you say in in one of your podcast episodes, or maybe it's several, do you feel like yourself when you're doing that? You know, as kind of a marker. And, and I have to agree with that therapist and and say that, you know, your work is very grounding. You know, it, it, that I think is a big part of therapy work too, is, is grounding ourselves. And you teach from a place of self-acceptance. And I wonder if you can talk a little bit about that. And that's my word. Um, but, you know, maybe if that, if that feels like an okay word and instead of resignation though, and I think a lot of times people confuse those words, they think, well, I can't accept myself. I can't let my inner critic, um, or close the door on my inner critic because then I'll get nothing done that we're so used to using shame as a motivator for behavioral change, but it's not, it's the opposite. It just makes us want to give up and get in bed. And so I wonder if you can talk about that that kind of self-acceptance, that how important that is when we're making these small changes, whether in the kitchen or in another part of our lives. Yes, absolutely. There are two things that come to mind for that question. One is I did a podcast episode years, I mean, years ago, long, deep in the archives, um, but it was called The Daily Act of Kindness. And I encouraged my audience to do something every day that was kind to themselves today, for today, for who they are today, not some sort of re, um, reward for like, well, I'm almost to this place, you know, not a reward for meeting some invisible finish, crossing some invisible finish line, or not something that you do every day to lead you to something. But like, how can you show kindness to who you are today? Because who you are today is who you are that's where we sit. That's where we're grounded is who we are. Like we can, it's good to think about growth. It is good to think about awareness. And of course we all want to continue. I mean, like the name of your show, you know, like we are still becoming, we still are, but it's not a this or that. It's not that, that who we are now is discounted because we might not be 
you know, might not experience this particular interaction in the way that we, we would like to, or we are still struggling with these kinds of messages around this topic or whatever. Like it doesn't discount or dismiss who we are now. And so I think you're absolutely right. There's an engine of self-acceptance. I love that you use the word resignation, not like reluctant, like, well, okay, I guess this is who right. I am. <laughs> Right. <laughs> not said in like an Eeyore voice, but said in the Tigger voice of like, this is who I am. Like yes. there's a, there's a, yes. there's a joy in that and who we are. And, and I do think that, cause the other thing that comes to mind is I do think that for me, and I will just speak for myself here, anecdotally and personally, one of the biggest reasons why I struggle to be okay with who I am now is because who I am now and the freedom I have in myself, like I've never felt more like myself than I do now. I'm 40 years old, other than my body just starting to literally physically fall apart right when I turned 40 for some super fun reason from a like an emotional just presence sense. I've never liked who I am more than I do now. I've never felt more like myself than I do now. Like it's, it's I really like who I am. And the problem with that is that who I am now would not have survived when I was four, when I was nine, when I was 16, when I was 25, she wouldn't have survived. And I come from a, an abusive home and a lot of trauma. And when you mentioned the inner critic and like, you can't close the door on the inner critic. I think one of the things that has helped me accept who I am now and and not in a in a resigned way, but in a joyful way, is that I can look at that nine-year-old me, because she's the loudest in my head. She's the most scared. She's the one that had to grow up the fastest. Like she's the la- often the loudest in the room. And she does not like me being okay with me. And she does not, she is nervous because she was told to be quiet and withdraw so that you're not noticed, so that you're not hurt. And now I'm like, I'm not that way anymore. I speak out and I'm, I laugh loud and I'm proud of who I am and I move into rooms confidently and that terrifies her. It terrifies her. And so this work that I've been doing in, in, my, in my own personal therapy for so long is befriending her and nurturing her and to tell her, you're right you were so strong then. We couldn't have done this without you, but we're safe now. You know, like every time I say that phrase, we're safe now. And I think that that is something a lot of people are nervous about going to therapy. A lot of people think that they haven't gone through enough hard things to merit it. You know, there are obviously, you know, there are so many, there are so many um, misnomers and all these things. Yes, Mm -hmm. roadblocks, so many things around it. And so it is the, it is such a deep, deep honor to me to be able to invite people into at least like, like just the, just the zip code of that kind of self-compassion and self-acceptance and sort of like gently say things like, Hey, you're okay. That's why one of my, um, one of my like phrases that I use often in my community is you're doing great. Mm, I love that. And even when you don't feel like you're doing great, like even when you're not doing great, you still are because you're you. Like you exist and you matter and you are great. And so even if everything around you is burning and you are like, I got to take a nap, I can't, like you feel like you can't function to move forward anymore. Like even naming that about yourself and acknowledging that and giving yourself what you need is demonstrating that you're doing great because you are you. So it's such a privilege. That's the word. It's such a privilege 
to be able to invite people into this space where they're like dipping their toe into what it means to be themselves. But then I push therapy all the time. I get DMs and I'm like, they're like, can you help me with this? I'm like, I can't. You need to see a therapist. Thank you so much for coming. Yeah. (laughs) This is outside my purview. Thank you. Right. Which I just, I so believe in that, right? It just, you know, not not myself included, not practicing outside of your competency. That's one of the best ways we can love people. Yes, absolutely. Right, is to refer them on. I, I love the, and thank you for sharing all that you've shared. And I really appreciate it. And I know that it will resonate and mean so much to listeners. And I, I hear this, um, tell me if this language feels okay, this, you know, bringing along of that nine-year-old, right? That is an integrated, um, trauma-informed, beautiful way to describe healing, that you bring her along and you say, we are safe now, and this is how we're going to live now. I just experienced that so much in your work, and, and you used the words that I was thinking the whole time you were talking, which is self-compassion. You know, there's so much self-compassion. That's such an important part of change. I just went to a a trauma conference online. I had no idea the words they were saying. It was like hippocampal volume, (laughs) nodules in your brain. It was a research conference. And I was just like, oh my gosh, I don't don't understand anything was happening. And all these researchers, they kept coming back to healing and the goal is self-compassion. And I was like, okay, I can understand that, you know? And so I love how much that your work embodies that, but also you thread that needle of living in our regular everyday lives, right? We don't get to live in the therapy room, right? And I know some of us would love that. Some of us would hate that. But but I wonder <laughs> with that self-compassion, one of the things that I, I see so much in your work is the um, the start small. I think that this idea of balance is a myth and it's a toxic myth. And you talk a lot about prioritizing what matters and starting small. And I wonder as we start to wrap up, if you could kind of, you know, from this beautiful lens of self-compassion, talk to us a little bit about prioritizing what matters for us and then starting small. So I tell this story in my first book, In the Lazy Genius Way, but I have had a difficult relationship with exercise Um, I had a past of disordered eating and then I had a, one of the ways that my father uh, was abusive was his messaging to me about my, about my body and my, and the purpose of my body in, in the world. And then not to mention, you know, there's that whole diet culture situation. So I, I have had a lot of messages, incorrect ones, damaging ones about, about my body. And it's been hard for me to separate the movement of my body, which is an important thing for my mental mm-hmm. health, for my mm-hmm. my heart, for so many things that have nothing to do with changing its size or shape, right? So that's been like some work in, in disentangling those two things. Well, there was, uh, this was years and years ago. This was probably five years ago. I knew that I needed to make some sort of, um, the word progress always makes me nervous. Anything that's like measure mm-hmm. <laughs> makes me nervous, but I, it's, you know, but I wanted, I wanted there to be a shift. Maybe that's a good word. I wanted there to be a shift in how I, my body moved every day. And I have what I call a caffeinated squirrel brain. It's just like running constantly all the time. And so yoga has always been something that I've really loved. You know, it's gentle. I also have like really terrible knee and hip joints, like terrible. Like I'm not allowed to run on hard surfaces, kind of terrible. I've had to go go to physical therapy, all these things. So um, yoga has, has been a really lovely thing for my body and my 
in my mind. And so I thought, okay, I really want to do more yoga. I really want to do this. So I was like, all right, I can do yoga like three times a week. I can do that like 30 minutes, three times a week. You know, I got the yoga top and I got the mat. I got the things I joined like some online membership deal. And I think I did two classes over like maybe nine or 10 days, not three a week. And I thought, well, maybe I don't have the right tools. Is my mat not I don't really, I don't love the color of my mat. I should get a different mat. And I got the block. I like it, you know, the cycle goes. Uh-huh. We all have those moments, right? And then I realized, I was like, why is this not working? Because the frustrating thing, and this is why I share the story. The frustrating thing is that guess what mattered to me? Doing yoga. It did genuinely matter. And for reasons that were rooted in truth and wholeness, not in diet culture or anything else. Like it really was rooted in a, in a correct, like honoring place to, to myself and my body. And I was frustrated. I was like, why is this not working? This thing matters to me. And then I just was like, oh wait, maybe it's too big. I mean, I feel like it's not too big. It's not too much to ask that I do this three times a week or two times a week or whatever, but like, it's not working. So how can I make this, the phrase I use is embarrassingly small, like (laughs) how, like Uh so small that you're like, is this, does this even count? It's so small. And so my commitment to myself was, okay, let's start small by doing one down dog a day. Just like all that is y'all is just like sort of bending over. Like that's it. There's nothing else. There's literally nothing else. And I thought, well, I'll just start small with that and we'll see how that goes. And I have been doing yoga every day for the last five years. And sometimes the only thing I do is a down dog. Sometimes I do a couple of sun salutations. I would say one out of every 50 to 70 times I might do like a 30 minute something, but usually it's just five to 10 minutes of like just general yoga stretches. It has impacted my life, my body, and my brain, and my soul in ways that I wanted to. And I didn't have to start big for that to happen. I didn't have to. So I just think that's like a very, very practical example. But it's like, you mentioned all or nothing. We think we have to build a big machine that it's like we have to have the checklist and the things. And how is this going to integrate with my meal plan? And how is this? And we spin out that we don't do anything. And you think that starting small and doing one down dog a day, well, that doesn't count, but the big machines don't work either. So like, why don't we try this? Let's just try and see. Because if the other stuff worked, we would all be doing it. It doesn't work. Starting small does. Starting small does work because small steps are sustainable. And sustainable steps actually keep you moving in a direction that matters to you. And then if you're like, you know what, this direction, I don't want this direction anymore, then you can just stop. You don't have to you know, dismantle an entire machine. You just stop with your one thing. So I just, I'm kind of obsessed with starting small, even though it's like the most annoying, least sexy advice of all time. <laughs> so it's so great. It's, and it's so accessible and it's so, um, transferable to anything, anything. right? Whether it's yes, yoga, anything. cooking, um, you know, walking, reading, writing, anything, anything. Let me ask you our final question, which is a question I ask everyone. And it's, um, what is one person or thing or event or doesn't have to be in those categories that helped you become the Kendra that we're talking to today? I think it's hard to not put therapy on that list. Um, yeah, well, therapy. But I think that, yeah, it it definitely is because that was like, you know, the thing, but, but I would say the person that comes to mind is 
my best friend, who is also an author. Her name's Emily, Emily P. Freeman. And the joke is she has seen me cry more than any other human on the planet. And she has been with me in my, like, the kind of sobs that you think are going to break your body into, you know? Obviously, I have affection for her because she is my pal. But um, she has modeled to me what it means to be with someone when they are hurting and not seek to fix it. And there was, there's just been something incredibly transformative about going through some pretty intense personal moments in her presence. She did not try to fix them and she affirmed who I was in that. And it gave me permission to not see who I was in that moment as flawed or deficient or broken or any of that. And I want to be that kind of friend to people. I want to be that kind of presence to people, even in the tiniest ways. Like there's something so incredibly powerful about letting people exist and simply being with them as they do. And she's just really good at that. And she's been doing that with me for a decade. And so I I don't think I would be the person I am without her friendship. That's so beautiful. Thank you for sharing that. And I, I think all of us listening are, are hopefully we have a friend like that or, or want to be a friend like that. It is incredibly beautiful and it's such a picture of love, the way you describe that, letting people exist and, and reminding them who they are in the pain. Thank you for sharing that. Sounds like an amazing friend. She is. She's a delight. Okay. Well, thank you so much, Kendra. I, I can't thank you enough. This was so fun and you are just as much fun to talk to as I suspected you would be and appreciate you, <laughs> everything you shared with us today. Thank you. Oh, that's very kind. Thanks for having me. I hope you enjoyed that conversation with Kendra as much as I did. I hope that you are as impacted in her last question description about her friend. And may we all be that kind of friend. And I hope that we will all find that kind of friend. I'm walking away with so many things. One of the things that I'm going to be reminding myself of is the power and the importance of self-acceptance and self-compassion and how starting from that place is not resignation, but it helps us to keep going. And the way that Kendra really reveals nuance as she says and that's where we live our real lives not in a binary all or nothing way and finally her idea that you're doing great you're doing great I hope that we all walk away into the rest of our days thinking this phrase as we attempt whatever it is that we're going to do next you're doing great If you want to learn more about Kendra and all the amazing work that she's doing in the world and all the different resources and content she's created for all of us, we'll have everything linked in the show notes. And as someone who has been idealistic in the kitchen and is getting more realistic, I have never seen a book like The Lazy Genius Kitchen, and I highly recommend it. For more information, please visit monicadecristina.com where you can sign up for my regular newsletter or follow along on Instagram. You can find me at monicadecristina. Please rate, review, and subscribe to Still Becoming wherever you listen to podcasts if you like what you heard here today. 
This episode was edited and sound designed by the team at SoundOn Studios. You can find out more about their work at soundonsoundoff.com. Thank you.